pull out of John chapter 14 in a few minutes. So Tim, we did a lot of walking. We went to sometimes seven different sites in one day. And we did things in Jordan. We did a whole lot of things through Israel, Jerusalem, Sea of Galilee, the whole surrounding area. But give us a highlight for you personally. And uh, I must say, Tim and Alita did an incredible job keeping up because we were up at like six in the morning and uh, walked all day in the hot desert sun most of the time. And uh, then we sort of collapsed in the evening. Really, that's what happened, right? (laughs) Every single day. We had one day off in two weeks. We took the Sabbath, um, partly because most of the Jewish... Um, things were actually closed on the Sabbath, um, but uh, some of us tried to sleep in that morning, but yes. some people went up. So what was the highlight for you personally? The highlight, hi church, the highlight was arriving at Jerusalem at the Holy Sepulchre Church. Yeah, sepulchre. So explain what sepulchre. that is. Well, it's just an ancient church. It's so beautiful. There's, you can really feel the presence of the Lord there. As soon as you walk in, the old door, I took a picture of it, it was so old, it's well, nearly 2,000 years, not quite 2,000. And uh, to walk in there, the church, you could just feel the presence of the Lord and the altar. And, and, and when they told me that you can touch the rock of Golgotha and Calvary, well, I just nearly freaked out. It was just awesome. And I said, what am I going to say to the Lord? Well, I just said, thank you, Lord, for saving my whole family. Amen. Thank right. you, Jesus. That was the highlight. The mosque church just, with its golden dome, just failed into worldly things. Just worldly things. It was beautiful. The low light was, uh, just quickly, the low light, now the low part was when, I, when we arrived in Galilee and I left my bag there in the foyer because we were such a hurry to get up. And I thought, oh my God, Lita says, where's your bag? Checks. <laughs> passport, cash, everything. We went rushing back there and there it was. Thank you, Lord, for saving my holiday. <laughs> we nearly left you there, didn't we, Tim? No, not really. Thank, thanks, Tim. Go and give him a big hand. It, it was an incredible time just to actually be in, um, obviously, when you sort of study or read the Bible and, and as a disciple of Christ, for, for most of us in this room, Um, We read stories in scripture that actually nominate where they took place and the journeys that the disciples or Jesus took or in the Old Testament there are stories of different places and we went to so many of those sites and it was just, it was amazing at one level to see how close a lot of things are. They're probably not as far away as we often imagine um, if you've never been there. But at another level, it was quite a journey in ancient times. So for example, to get from from, uh, Capernaum to Jerusalem was a three-day walk and um, experts and theologians estimate it probably took uh, maybe 30 kilometres a day of walking in those conditions. Very hilly, uh, rocky and of course certainly in the spring and summer it can be very, very hot. And so of course water sources were an issue, hospitality because you had no food or not enough food for your journey. Um, So it was quite incredible. I'm actually going to show you a little short Um, slide presentation and it's not going to be a boring show I promise you um, because I couldn't fit everything in Um, so I'm going to show you a little video and I'll just show you tell you a little few things as we watch it um, about where we were and I'm sure it'll it'll bring up quite a few questions so um, thanks guys put the lights down for me and you can start it in when you when you're ready thanks mate 
So this is Mount Nebo, and where this is where Moses saw the Promised Land. So that lake there in the distance is the Dead Sea. The Jordan flows into that. The patch in the middle of the screen, sort of towards the top, is Jericho. And this is the Sea of well, Galilee. It uh, happens to be the Sabbath, and I am standing on the shorelines of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus and his disciples ministered, fished, travelled around their shorelines. It's just incredible to be at the actual locations where these biblical accounts took place and where our Saviour fulfilled a number of part of his ministries right here in Galilee. We did a boat ride and uh, did communion. We sort of sailed towards Capernaum from Tabitha, where we were staying. Totally underdeveloped. That's Jordan in the background. That's the country of Jordan, which borders the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is actually a freshwater lake. So it's not a sea in the traditional sense. It's really a lake, and it's fed by an underground spring. Um, it's only around um, 21 kilometres long and about 15 kilometres wide. So it's not very big as you would imagine. So again, this is from Israel's side looking back um, over to the mountains where Jordan, the, the, the current country Jordan is. Uh, we stopped at a few sites. This is the site where Jesus um, fed the 5,000 right on the shorelines here. In 1986, there was a big drought on the Sea of Galilee and they found a 2,000-year-old fishing boat. The only way they could get it out without damaging it was using expander foam all around it. Um, then they soaked it in special oils and chemicals for about 12 years, but it's now on display. And it's actually um, the same style of boat that the disciples and Jesus would have used, both for fishing, transportation in the community, those sort of things. Um, so you can go and see that boat with the nails, the original nails and all that sort of stuff. This is the River Jordan. I got baptised again in the River Jordan. I wasn't passing that opportunity up. Absolutely loved it. Right at this site called Yardit. And um, it's not probably the site where John the Baptist baptised people and, of course, baptised Jesus. But it's a, uh, it's a site that's currently used by pilgrims and Christians that go there. You can see how wide the river is at that point. In other points, it's, it's quite small. It's more like a creek. But um, plenty of fish and an incredible site, actually. Uh, Tim was baptised as well. Quite a few of us out of the... Out of, there was 30 people on the tour and a number of them were baptised there. Capernaum, I know I, met, I preached on Capernaum about three months ago. So we went there. This is the synagogue, but look at the bottom of the screen, the black rock. That black rock is actually the original synagogue that Jesus would have preached and taught in. This current synagogue with the ruins of it was built about um, 600 years later or 300 years later. Um, but it's the same sort of size, um, fits about 250 people, um, and it's the town where Peter lived and a number of the disciples. So these are ruins of homes, um, right next to the synagogue on the left. And then this is a modern Orthodox church built over the top of Peter's house. So they've found the ruins of Peter's house because his name's inscribed on one of the walls there, and they've put a protective barrier around. But in, from inside the church, you can look down. So here I'm looking down at one of the doorways inside Peter's house, inside that modern church. It's got a glass bottom at some point to look down on Peter's home. This is the Mount of Olives, which has been used for a number of centuries as a Jerusalem burial site, but it's looking into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. So again, bottom of the screen is the graveyard, and then you look down into the valley across, you can see the Dome of the Rock, which is Jerusalem, and used to be where the temple was built by Solomon, and now that Dome of the Rock, the, the Muslim site, is there. 
Um, you can see how big it is. It's quite a modern city, even though, of course, it's an ancient city at the same time. And just, um, you don't see it here, but on the left-hand side is the road from the Mount of Olives towards Jerusalem, which we all walked, and it's actually the, the road that Jesus walked. Um, the only difference now, it's got uh, bitumen on it. But it's quite steep and uh, descends right down to the valley and then you have to walk up. See the old walls in the middle of the screen? Um, which is the ancient city or the old city of Jerusalem. Now we're on the Temple Mount where the Dome of the Rock is, which is that golden building at the front there. This is a very large plateau. So it's, it's one of the high points in, in Jerusalem. But it's again, this is where Solomon's Temple would have been. Um, but in 1691, um, the Muslims constructed this particular site. It's built over a rock where Christians believe and Jews believe Abraham offered, was about to offer up his son Isaac. And that's why the temple was built there. Um, Islam believes that Muhammad ascended into heaven from that rock. Um, it wasn't open, we couldn't go in there. But it's not a mosque. This was one of the highlights for me. This is the tomb of King David. And uh, when we went in there, there was a, a Jewish Orthodox man praying. And um, I spent some time, um, in the end it was just myself and another gentleman on our tour. And we prayed over um, David's tomb. It was quite moving for me. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. Again, maybe not the literal location. They're not really sure. But it's at the base of the Mount of Olives before you go up the hill towards Jerusalem. But these olive trees uh, around 900 years old. They've been dated. They're the oldest trees in all of Israel. And there's a church next to the site. I, didn't, I haven't put the photo of the church there. But you can go there and pray. And it's in the same area where Jesus actually prayed before his crucifixion. This is one possible Golgotha. See the skull in the middle of the screen in the hill? And so this is one possible site where Jesus was crucified. This is, these are old photos because the face now, a little bit towards the left, has partly fallen away just from erosion. But there's a bus site right under it. And right next to it, they found a tomb. And the tomb is a typical wealthy man's tomb for that era and actually had a groove where they would roll a big stone in front of it. That groove is still there. And we went inside the tomb, which could have actually fit two or three people or bodies, um, probably to the left and to the right. Um, that symbol on the wall is an ancient, the first Christian symbol for Christianity that says Christ King um, and it's an ancient anchor symbol with Christ King in the middle of it. This is a tunnel that goes underneath the old city of Jerusalem called Hezekiah's Tunnel. Um, and you walk through it in pitch black. There's no lighting and uh, there's water up to your waist and then it goes down to around your ankles. It's 553 metres long and Sue and I walked through that um, in the dark. I had to take a little torch. Um, these are a couple of my little photos trying to take it with my flash. But you can't see where you're going for over half a kilometre without a torch. And Hezekiah built it because they were under siege and he wanted water to come into the city. And so it's an incredible engineering feat done before the time of Christ. And you can walk through Hezekiah's tunnel today. This is um, part of the old city going into the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall, which is the only wall left of the ancient um, part of Solomon's Temple or near Solomon's Temple and you can see on the sign it says it's where the divine presence always rests. So a lot of Orthodox Jews, you know, go there. There's taps to ceremonially clean your hands before you enter, uh, touch the wall. Males and females can go and touch the wall. They're just segregated into two different sections. Um, so the men were on the left and the women were on the right. We went there on the Sabbath or Shabbat Shalom, um, as it's called. 
and so a lot of Orthodox Jews were praying there. This is a tradition where some Orthodox Jews get their wrist wrapped seven times, um, and as a part of the, the ancient text they put on their head in a little black box, and he's praying now those words of those texts um, before he goes to the wall to pray. So there are a lot of Orthodox Jewish people praying there, so they're really waiting for their Messiah to come and for the temple to be rebuilt um, where the current Dome of the Rock is. So they're singing Shabbat Shalom, which is Sabbath peace. Shabbat just means Sabbath, Shalom is peace. It was like being at a football match at one level. This is right at the wall, but a lot of younger guys who are not Orthodox would actually chant and start preaching in their groups. And there were a whole lot of Griffin groups doing it. So it felt like you're in the middle of a football match and it was packed, you could hardly move. The soldiers come and actually pray at the wall as well. And as it got towards dusk, you can see how quite um, tight it gets in terms of crowds. You, could, you really could hardly move. More chanting in the background there going on, celebrating Sabbath peace. And um, as evening fell, most of the Orthodox Jews are in so the, towards the back of the screen, which is the holy place at the front of the screen there. Um, anyone can actually go and stand there. So that's a little bit about our time away. It was incredible. We did so many other things. Um, so let me tell you a couple other things you didn't see because I, d I didn't want it to be a boring show. You know, you go to some slideshows um, by a relative and you go, oh, that's good. And underneath you go, oh, gee, what time is it? So I didn't want to do that. We also went to Nazareth. We went to Bethlehem. Um, we went to Megado, which is in biblical language Armageddon. So it's where possibly the final battle takes place between good and evil. Um, and that was in the middle of nowhere. There's almost nothing there. Um, there's a modern current little township um, because there's a small water source there. But it's just absolutely desolate um, where Megado or Armageddon is. We went to Mount Carmel where Elijah took on the, the prophets of Baal. And that was incredible because it's quite a steep, um, tall hill in the, in the very flat landscape around. Um, and that's because they believed that in the ancient world before Christ, they believed that gods lived on mountains or just the sky above mountains. So, of course, that's where Elijah um, did that. We went to the city of David, which is just below the ancient city of Jerusalem. It's not in the actual walled city. Um, David actually built his city just outside. And so we went there and we actually, they've uncovered his palace. But it just looks like ruins. Uh, you, know, you sort of walk over the top on a, on a um, walkway and there's just little small sort of bricks left or stones left of the big palace rooms. And what was really fascinating is they've discovered all these little apartment blocks just under that and that's where they say David would have stood and saw Bathsheba as he looked down over these apartment blocks because bathing on the rooftops was very, very common. And so just to be in that space was a little bit freaky. Uh, we went to the Shrine of the Book where they store the ancient scrolls. Um, that was a highlight for me personally because I've taught uh, a lot at different colleges on um, the Dead Sea Scrolls. We also went to Qumran where those Dead Sea Scrolls were found back in 1947. And in fact, only six months ago, they found another fragment of a Dead Sea Scroll in the same area. So they're still discovering a lot of things. In fact, Jerusalem... It's a modern city, but there's archaeological digs going around all the time. So, for example, you buy a piece of property there um, as a local person and you want to build a brand new home and you start to dig and you find ruins in your dirt, you have to stop digging 
and the government comes in and decides whether you can either demolish it or whether the government wants to keep it. Um, if the government wants to keep it because it's an important archaeological site, then you get to build your home over the top. So we went to, um, uh, we went to a place called the Burnt House, which um, is one of the high priest's house of the temple, and it's called the Burnt House because it's got um, evidence of it being burnt down in 70 AD when the Romans came through and destroyed the whole city. Um, but they know it's the high priest's house because of the, again, the things that were found inside the house with his name on it. Um, and so um, the people who brought that, originally brought that property, they live above it. So they put poles down and then they build a home over the top. And so all us tourists could actually go down these stairs. They live on top and we went underneath and had a look at the burnt house. We also went to Jericho, which is very, very hot. It's called the City um, of Palms which is an absolute lie. There was only about six palm trees that I could see and it was in the middle of the absolute desert, let me tell you. Um, but that's the area, interesting enough, not just about the you know, story about the walls of Jericho and so on, but it's the area where they believe Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness and because we, we went to the top of a high mountain that overlooks Jericho, which is the only high place in that part of the desert and so it sort of fits the biblical account. We went to the Dead Sea and totally floated in the Dead Sea. You cannot sink in the Dead Sea. I tried. Um, tried to push myself down. You kept bobbing up like a little, you know, like a little float. Um, but if you got, if you, if you, I shaved that morning and any water on your skin, it just stings like anything um, or any fine cuts. Some people had some little scratches and they were discovering where they were scratched and they didn't, didn't know about it until they got into the Dead Sea. The reason why the Dead Sea is the most um, saltiest um, and mineralized lake in the world is not because it has no outlet, which is often what has been taught. It's simply because underneath the lake is a gigantic, massive, almost the same size of the actual lake. Um, again, the Dead Sea is not an, uh, not an ocean-fed sea. It's a freshwater-fed. But there's a sp- the f- it gets fed from a spring and from the River Jordan, but there's a massive salt rock that actually sits underneath it, and that's what... No, no, nothing can live in it because it's so salty and mineralised. We also went to the Red Sea, um, swam in the Red Sea, followed a few fish around, all that sort of stuff. And it's probably not far from where um, the Israelites crossed with Moses. And uh, went to Masada, where, of course, the Romans um, took on that Jewish um, Essene community who thought they were the, the holiest group left on the planet. And eventually they... Um, suicided before the Romans broke in but the Romans it took them um, I think a couple of years they built a ramp Um, Masada is I'm not sure the height but it's very very high it's a high uh, isolated hill and so the Romans couldn't actually attack it in their traditional way and they took a couple of years to build by hand with rocks and dirt a ramp to break in but when the Romans finally broke in everybody in that city was dead they'd suicided except for two women and so they told the story of what happened and then probably the most personal highlight for me is um, I renewed my vows to my bride in Cana where Jesus turned water into wine. And uh, we got some free wine for doing it, which was great. And uh, they also made a wedding cake. Tim and Alita did it as well. They renewed their wedding vows. It was very moving to be in Cana where Jesus did his first miracle and um, actually renewing our vows together was just, was just incredible. So look, it was a great time. If you have other questions, let me know. I'm talking in a connect group on Thursday with a bit more detail. Um, but it was if you ever get the chance to go, I would say go. 
Um, do it while you're a bit young and fit and take plenty of water and um, you know, um, sports drinks or something to keep yourself hydrated because you do a lot of walking. But it was incredible. Now, if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to John chapter 14. I'm going to show you something that sort of struck me um, recently and particularly after going there. Um, just one little verse out of John 14. If you don't normally come to church um, and you don't have a Bible, you can just Google it. If you just put into Google John 14, it'll, the scripture will actually come up. And I'm going to read to you um, one part of the story of a phrase that Jesus says to his disciples um, not long before his crucifixion. To put you in context, when we get to this part of, of the story of Jesus' life, he's actually left Capernaum where he spent nearly three years, did most of his ministry around the Sea of Galilee and travelling around the different towns around the Sea of Galilee. That's where a lot of his ministry took place. And then he went to Jerusalem with his disciples knowing that he would be crucified on, the, on behalf of all humanity to offer himself up as a sacrifice. So when we pick up this part of the, the Bible account, John 14, John was one of the original disciples and he's writing the story or the history of his time with Jesus. And so they've left Capernaum, they're in Jerusalem, um, he's washed the disciples' feet, some of you know that story, he's already done that, so he's taken on the form of a servant by taking off his outer garment, having just his inner garments on like a servant would, wash the disciples' feet. Then they've had what we often commonly refer to as the last supper or the last meal together. And so during that meal, he's identified Judas as the one who would betray him. He's also identified Peter as the one who would deny him. And this leads to an interesting conversation. So it's really after this meal, those two specific events have just taken place. And if you look um, actually in verse uh, chapter 13, if you've got a Bible, um, Jesus says to them in verse... Uh, let me see, verse 38. Simon Peter says to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus says, where you go, you cannot where I go, you cannot follow. You can't come where I'm going. He's talking about his death. So Peter says, well, Lord, why can't we follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Now remember, um, Jesus has already just told him that he'll deny him. Then the last verse of that chapter, then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before uh, the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Verse 14, and there's no chapter or verse divisions in the original, in the original um, document by John. So you just keep reading. So we're into the next chapter, but it's still the same conversation that Jesus is having. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If were that not so, I would have told you. But I'm going, sorry, that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you will also be where I am. So just follow this, this structure of this discussion that Jesus is having. Peter wants to know why can't he follow. Now we know in hindsight that they couldn't follow Jesus to be crucified with him. But then the whole discourse comes, well, how do we get to where he's going to be eventually? And so Jesus says, well, I'm going to prepare a place in my father's house and I'll come back and I will get you. The next verse, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Now, it's interesting, Jesus states it as a fact. Now, Thomas gets a bit of flack, doesn't he? Doubting Thomas is often called because of something that happens after 
Jesus' resurrection from the dead, where he struggles to believe that Jesus is in front of him. But Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. Now, it's interesting when you think about that verb, way. It's just, you know, denotes like a path or a track or a road. So, for instance, I could say to you, what way did you come to Uni Hill this morning? And you'd tell me the different streets or the direction that you came to Uni Hill. But, of course, we use way, those three letters, that one word, not just in a literal sense of a road path or track or direction. We also use the word way to denote it as a metaphor to a journey. So not just the direction in which we take, but actually what happens when we're in that direction. And this is the way Jesus uses that term when he denotes himself the way. So Peter wants to follow him to the crucifixion, not really understanding what he's saying. And Jesus says, well, you can't follow me there, but I will go and prepare a place and I'll come back and I'll get you. And then Thomas says, well, how do we know the address? Effectively, that's what Thomas is saying. Well, it's not a physical address because it's a spiritual address. Jesus says to Thomas, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, you've got it wrong, Thomas. I'm not using the word literally, way. I'm telling you that if you want to get to the Father, if you want to get to God, I am the way. You have to follow me, my way, not your way. It's not a literal address or a destination. It's the journey that you take with me in life. I am the way. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, I'm going to critique something in our Christianity, or particularly in our former expression of Christianity, that I think doesn't help us sometimes. Christians love truth. We love truth. We think it's an absolute abstract idea and we want everybody who doesn't know Jesus or follow Jesus to understand the truth that we've got. But here's the problem if that's the only way you see truth. Way comes before truth. Jesus said, I am the way. Now actually in the original language that John writes, which is not a commonly practiced language of today, it's called Koine Greek, and it's not a common Greek in today's world. But the way he structures that sentence is he puts the statement or the, or the word way as the clause that pushes truth and life. And as Christians, we're so focused on truth. We think, oh, if people just knew the truth about Jesus. They just have to understand the truth of Scripture. If we could just tell them what the truth is. But no, way comes first. In fact, some theologians argue it would be better translated by Jesus using this phrase, I am the way and the way to truth is me. See, truth is not an abstract concept or an absolute idea that we sit down and debate and discuss. Truth is a person and that person is Jesus, but the only way you get to the truth is if you go down his way of living. You can't separate truth from his way. Now, as Christians, if you're doing that, stop. Stop doing it. The only way to get to the truth is to follow him. 
It's not a construct for us to debate or to force on other people. They don't know the way. Truth only comes by going his way. His designated way for living. To get to the Father. So Jesus says, I am the way and the truth, or the way of truth. As I said, some theologians say that's probably a better translation. And then the the last phrase he says is, and the life. Now again, we love talking about life. In Pentecostal Christianity, we want life, life to the full. You know, we quote John 10.10 and... You know, in fact, in John, actually in John's gospel, John is focused on truth and life, actually. So John mentions the word truth in relation to Jesus 21 separate times. If you read the whole gospel without stopping, you'll, you'll see them. John's also very interested in life through Jesus. He mentions that 39 times. And this is one of them. 39 times. So we should have a focus on life, but again, way comes first if you divorce jesus's way from jesus life you can't get there the two are extremely linked they're so blended and melded you cannot separate them just to have a discussion or a debate or to try and convince someone that life only comes through jesus while that is constructively true the only way you get there is to follow his way way always comes first So I want to challenge all of us who are disciples and followers of Jesus in this room this morning. If you remember anything, its way comes first. His way, the Jesus way. The Jesus way will lead you to the Jesus truth and the Jesus life. Don't bypass, or in fact, let me say it this way. You cannot get to life or truth any other way but his way. But way is a metaphor for living. He's not talking about a literal physical address. He's talking about the destination of being with the Father. The only way we're going to get there is to go his way or in a literal sense to follow his teachings for living. That's what he means when he says, I am the way, the Jesus way. The Jesus way wedded to the Jesus truth brings the Jesus life. The Jesus way wedded to the Jesus life brings the Jesus life. Don't try and separate them. We cannot proclaim the Jesus truth any old way we like. Christians, listen to me. And you cannot proclaim the Jesus life any way you think. It's his way, not our way. It's not your opinion. It's not what you assume life's about. It's his way or you don't get there at all. Way comes first. The Jesus way. We cannot divorce or separate the Jesus way from his truth and think we're going to find it or divorce the Jesus way from life and think we're going to find it. We cannot skip the way of Jesus in a hurry to get to the truth or the life. The way is what counts. The journey of you living out the teachings of Christ every single day, not just on Sunday when we gather, but tomorrow when you're working alongside someone who's annoying or frustrating you or hampering you or some family member you don't get along with. All these little things are the way. The only place you can live out the Jesus way is in your everyday, ordinary, mundane life. 
And you try, often as Christians, we try to escape those things, but it's the teachings of Jesus of what to do in the midst of those things that gets you to truth and life. And so trying to avoid them, you're avoiding truth and life. The way of Jesus, the Jesus way is to be lived every single day in our homes, workplaces, neighbourhoods, in our congregation, with your family, with your friends, where nobody else is watching, with unchurched, with other believers, in order to get this truth in life that we so desperately desire. I think most humans desire it. And particularly Christians, we, we're vitriolic about talking about it, but way comes before truth and life. Jesus' response to Thomas's question, how will I know the way? The answer that Jesus gives him is the same for us. He says to us today, I am the way and the way of truth and the way of life. Now here's our problem. The Australian way is nowhere near close to the Jesus way. The Western way has no similarity to the Jesus way whatsoever. Now this is true whether you're a disciple of Jesus or not. This is true for all of us. This is our problem. The Australian way is devoted to consumerism, science, self-help, catchy slogans, self-improvement, how to live longer, how to have a picture-perfect holiday on Facebook, or how to look like you have no blemishes on your skin or you have the perfect body on Instagram. We have a dedication in the Australian Western way to have more, to live bigger, to get more, our self-worth is fed by how much we earn, where we live, what we drive, what our families do or may not do. We are told that we need a holiday, that the only person, most important person in the world is you. We're sold all this as an answer for truth and life and yet it turns out to be a cheap ecstasy, a deliberate diversion because all of those things and all the other things our Western Australian way presents to us has no similarity or reflection of the Jesus way whatsoever and yet we go back to that trough again and again and again because when you consume that message you're always left dissatisfied. We know in our hearts from our own experiences of our culture that it's just a facade. There's nothing deep, lasting, satisfying of what the culture around us presents. And without critiquing our culture, we let it creep into our Christianity. We get sucked into depersonalizing truth and life. You can't. You can't have truth and life without the person of Jesus. You don't need another holiday. You need Jesus. You don't need a better job. You need the Jesus way. Because that's our, all of us who follow Jesus, that's our experience. Now, you might get a holiday or a better job. But you might not. You might get a worse job. Everyone been on holiday and it's been an absolute disaster? I know Charles. Charles puts up his hand because he goes camping. (laughs) But, you know, we're offered this manipulative, depersonalised facade that you'll be happier and healthier and better, but you won't. There's no truth in life in it. The only way, Jesus said, I am the way. The only way to life and truth is the Jesus way. It's not the way in which Jesus brings us to the Father, is all the things that the culture tells us we should do, invest in, 
I mean, think of advertising. We, we are given appetites from advertisers we never knew we had. How many times do you replace your phone? We swallow things without realising it's so far from the Jesus way. We're insatiable and we don't even realise it. And I repeat, it's not the Jesus way that brings us to the Father through truth and life. We cannot, now listen, I'm talking to us Christians here, we cannot gather as God-worshipping, God-fearing, following God congregation by a consumer-pleasing, commodity-orientated, switched-on people group. We're not on trend. That's not the Jesus way. The Jesus way is sacrificing yourself for other people. The Jesus way is forgiving those who offend, hurt and deliberately attack you. The Jesus way is turning the other cheek. The Jesus way is offering mercy and grace. The Jesus way is always be giving and generous even when you have nothing left to give. That's not our culture's way, but it's the Jesus way. It's the only way that brings truth and life. So we cannot suppress the Jesus way in order to sell the Jesus life and truth. The way comes first. A consumer-oriented church is an antichrist church. You should write that down. If you come to church and think, oh, the lights aren't good, sounds this, that, you know that Greg who spoke today? That's a consumer mentality. I, I, all I can do is teach you the way of Christ, but you have to live the way of Christ the minute you walk out the door for the rest of the week. I have no control over that. Or does, nor does the music, nor does you know, anything else that happens in an organised, illustrated, sort of structured church setting. That's not the way. We're only here celebrating, worshipping our God and talking about the way, but from 11.30, you're leaving this building and you have to live the way. That's the way. It's on his terms. So a consumer-oriented church is an antichrist church. When I decided to do this Israel tour, uh, actually it was two years ago, but they postponed it for a year, I did this tour knowing that I'd have to follow the leader. I don't know if you've ever been on some sort of trip that someone else has organised and um, you don't always like what's, what's going on. So where you go, what you do, how you do it. You don't always appreciate the person who's organised the thing and running it. And so, you know, there were some things even on this trip when I went to Jordan, Israel, that I would have preferred not to do. And there were other things I would have loved to do we didn't get to do. But it wasn't my journey. I wasn't leading the journey. Now, when it comes to the Jesus way, it's on his terms, it's not on our terms. He sets the terms, conditions, the structures, the commands, the disciplines, the obedience. He sets those terms. Your opinion doesn't count because you're not the way. In the Western world, we're so opinionated. You just listen to talkback radio. Everyone's got an opinion about everything. And, you know, they were talking, I heard them talking about on the radio this week of what they call virtual singling. And that is when you have a different opinion from the mass, you're automatically now wrong. But that's not the Jesus way. Now, here's the thing. Jesus invites us to come with him on the way. But it's his journey. He will take you places you don't want to go. He will get you to do things you'd rather not do. But it's his journey. It's his way. It's not our way. There's no other way to get to truth in life. 
It's only his way. And the more we resist our submissive obedience to his life living instructions, the less truth you engage with and the less life you live. I mean, it's just, it's pure mass. If you don't do what the tour leader says, you're not going to experience the journey they've set up for you. Warts and all, likes and dislikes. He sets the conditions for the way, not us. It is the Jesus way, it's not Greg's way, it's not Charles's way, it's not your way, it's not our world's way. There is no other way to get there. It's the Jesus way. So the leader of the journey is the one that we are following. To follow Jesus implies we enter the way of life that he gives structure, character and demands to. We follow the one who has called us. So here's the thing, Jesus invites us to follow him. You can say yes or no to that invitation. But if you say yes to the invitation, he sets the conditions for your life's journey. That's the Jesus way. We do not invite him to follow our way. Now, think about how many times have you prayed where really you're inviting Jesus to follow your way. Oh God, if I was only you, I'd do this, this and this. I don't know what you're doing, Lord. You, do you really know what you're doing, God? You know, we have these conversations. And that, that's, that's understandable. That, I'm not critiquing that. That's, that's our emotions coming out of us. But the reality is we don't invite him to follow our way. Because he's the creator of life. He knows. He, he set it up. He's the sustainer of your breath. Your limbs and your, your, your body cells are held together under his command. It's his way. There is no other way. If you want to get to truth in life, it's his conditions. To follow Jesus means we cannot separate what Jesus is saying from what Jesus is doing and the way in which he does it sacrifice, gentleness, humility, forgiveness, mercy. You know, so when someone offends you or, or, or really attacks you, is it the Jesus way or is it your way? It's interesting, you know, Christians in the first few centuries were never called Christians. In fact, there's only one biblical reference in the book of Acts where we are called Christians and it was actually a geography term at that, that point in history. You know, the most common phrase that the apostles and then the believers that followed them was they called themselves the people of the way. There's six references in, in the book of Acts as they're referring themselves the way. I'm in the way. I'm a follower of the way. We are people of the way. They understood way comes first. But in the Western world, we're focused on truth and life and all those other things. We've forgotten the only way to get there is the Jesus way. So if you follow Jesus, then everything that you think, everything that you own, everyone else in your world is reimagined, reshaped and reorientated to the Jesus way. The Jesus way means he's master, king, he's God, you're not. That's what the Jesus way really means. You put him as the ruler and the instructor of every breath you take and every action you do. Every thought that you have, every feeling that comes out of you, you put it under his kingship, lordship, rulership. This is not easy. And it's not accomplished just by coming to church on a Sunday, going to a connect group midweek, or even just coming to a prayer meeting. Those sort of things are part of expressing the Jesus way, but the Jesus way 
is every day, every moment followership of Jesus. And we live in a world that's focused on leadership, but we should be focused on followership. We're not good followers. Westerners are not good followers. Do you like being told what to do? You know, by a traffic cop or trying to get in. You know, you go to some churches, they tell you where to sit and you can get upset about that, right? We're not good followers, are we? Don't follow your boss at work all the time. We're so focused on leadership. But we follow Jesus every moment of the day. That's what it means to be in the way or to be a Christian. There's two things that Jesus said, and I'll finish with this. At the start of each gospel, when he met people, he said to them, follow me, because that's his invitation into his way. So he said to Simon, Peter, Matthew, John, James, Thomas, come follow me. And that invitation is the same for us today. Jesus still says to us, if you want truth and life, come follow me. This is the way. The other thing he says at the start of all the Gospels, well, if you follow me, repent. Now, we think the word repent is this old-fashioned religious terminology that's an emotion. Oh, I'm so sorry, God, I'm so sorry I've done that. But the word repent does no, it's got no emotive feel to it at all. The word repent simply means you're going your way and you turn around and go his way. That's all it means. Now, sometimes emotion comes with it, but it's not an emotive word, biblically or otherwise. It simply means you were going that way and now you're going this way. You turn around and you go a different direction. So they're the two things that Jesus invites us all to do, to follow him. And if we follow him, we have to stop going our way and start going his way. Follow me and repent. They're the two key verbs that Jesus said to all the people in his group at that time in history. So followership gets us moving obediently in the Jesus way. It's a way of speaking, thinking, acting, treating other people, submission, way of praying, a way of bringing the reality of God's life kingdom on earth into your world right now. There's no other way to get there. Following means you enter into the Jesus life and its character who is shaped by the leader, Jesus himself. When I was in the Hezekiah Tunnel, those photos made it look really broad, but in actual fact, most of the time, each side of that tunnel was rubbing up against your shoulders or your hips. That's how tight it was. But that was a good illustration for the Jesus way. Once you start following Jesus, like in the Hezekiah Tunnel, you can't go any other way. In fact, it's so that tunnel is so tight at some points, you literally can't turn around. And our guide, our local Israeli guide, said to us before we went into it, if you're claustrophobic or, you know, you don't like the dark and all that and, and you, th- you can't think you can walk half a kilometre in the dark in, you know, water up to your waist, don't go in there because you can't turn around. That's the Jesus way. Now, we try and turn around because we're self-centred. We think we know better. If we ran the universe, we'd do this, this and this. But that's not the Jesus way. Now, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father, that is God, except through me. Jesus did not say he's a good way, the only way, a nice way, 
a convenient way, the easiest way. He just said, if you want to get to the Father, if you want to live in truth and life, I'm the only way to get there. So Jesus is our way to God. And interesting enough, it's the same way God comes to us. No matter how long you've travelled in the wrong direction, you can always turn around in your life. So I'm going to invite you to the Jesus way and put way his way before truth and life. Here's what I'm going to do. If you don't know what it means to follow Jesus or to have a relationship with this teacher of, of the ancient world from, from Israel, all I'm going to invite you to do is to investigate it further. Now we have what we call the Bible, which contains his teachings and sayings, his instructions for what to do in life and how to get through this existence that we have on the planet. It's more than just trying to get into heaven. Jesus is very interested in what happens every single day. And so what we're going to do, we have a, a Bible we'd like to give you and also a little booklet that talks about why Jesus. Why would I be interested or follow this Jesus that you've heard me been speaking about? So can everybody stand? I'm going to finish my time of speaking before you. Just close your eyes for a few moments, just for privacy. I don't want you to think about what you've heard today. The Jesus way and the Jesus way comes first. It's the only way to truth and life. If you've been following Jesus for a number of months, years, decades, that's still true for you and me today. We must resubmit or recommit ourselves to living the Jesus way every single moment whether other Christians are around us whether at work whether we're being mistreated if you don't know what it is to have a relationship with Jesus we want to help you investigate further whether it's a decision you want to make the Jesus way simply means to follow the teachings of him for your whole life and as you follow the Jesus way, you'll find the Jesus truth and the Jesus life. We're not asking you to join a church. You don't have to come here. We're not asking you to join an institutionalised religion. It's an invitation to personally get to know Jesus and let him reshape and redirect your life. We want to help you discover the Jesus way by giving you the gift of this Bible, which has the teachings of Jesus. We'll also help you by showing you how to read it and apply his life instructions to your world so anybody here why don't you put your hand up if you want one of these Bibles you want to make a decision to follow Jesus for the very first time just slip your hand up in the air I'm not going to call you forward or anything like that but we're going to give you one of these in your hand right now so anyways, one right down the front here thanks right at the front second front row in the corner anyone else just a free gift to read the Jesus Bible there's one in the middle right here thanks thanks Lynn anybody else one over there as well. Just keep your hand up high just for a moment as our host get one to you. That's the message of Christianity. Christians aren't perfect. We don't do everything right. But we're trying to follow the Jesus way. And that's what's changed our lives. 
Now, if you made that decision today, we don't want you to just to rush off. Our host will actually have a quick conversation with you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And we'll help you in any way we can. So please don't rush off. We're here to help you. Why don't we put our hands together for those people that have made a decision to investigate Jesus further. I'm going to hand over back to Pastor Charles. I appreciate you listening to me this morning. The Lord bless you. Hey, praise God. Why don't you take your seats just for a little minute. I just have uh, one announcement or two announcements that I wanted to just make at the end. Uh, First one was we had the cook-up last week, uh, which was fantastic. So the fridge is full of food, uh, ready to give away. So if you know anybody with a need, this is how we want you to direct you. If you go to our website, there's an email called info at unihillchurch.com.au. If you email that email, we'll be able to get food to you and someone will be uh, in communication with you. So that's a great uh, opportunity for us to take a hold of. Everybody may know somebody in need. So all you need to do is communicate with us and that food's available for anybody who's in need. Also, why we want to do this one at the end is coming up in a couple of weeks' time is the Passion Conference. It's called Fearless. That's June 16 and 17. It's for women. It's going to be an incredible opportunity uh, for you guys to go and connect together and experience the power of God. So Clarissa, our women's uh, coordinator, is just up. If you could stand. If you guys go and see Clarissa today after the service, we'd love to know who's coming because we'd like to arrange for us to go together uh, in a community uh, so that we can uh, go see our women fired up and come back and let that influence our community. God is good, isn't he? Hey, now I love you guys. Hey, let's reflect on the service. Does everybody remember me saying I'm nailing the dedications? I forgot the video. So I did well. So we're going to end the service today now. But what we're going to do is uh, we'll have a quick look at the video that we made for uh, Sabella. And then please have a blessed week and we'll see you next week. Praise God.